Lord God, this day may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you've had a chance to be with us the last few weeks, you might remember that we have begun a new sermon series that is focused on prayer, and we're looking specifically at what it means to pray in all occasions, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows and everything in between. One of the ironies that we immediately begin to notice with something like prayer is that in our world and in our culture, which is increasingly not religious and increasingly really not open to church, at the same time, people are open to issues of spirituality and even especially things like prayer. So when something bad happens, even non-religious people tend to say things like, I will keep you in my thoughts and prayers, almost as a reflex of sorts. Whether they actually follow up on the prayer is almost not the issue. The issue is that they're open to the idea and the concept of prayer. What's ironic in that is that if you look at people who are in the church or people who consider themselves to be religious, they of course say, hey, we are open to prayer. We embrace prayer. We want to be all about prayer. And yet, if we actually did a close follow-up and survey of our individual lives, what we would discover is that even though we say we are open to it, we really do a pretty poor job of practicing it. In fact, when we looked really carefully, we discovered we're not even close to praying the way God would have us to pray, even though we say on the surface as religious people, I am all about prayer and I want to pray. So you have some of the non-religious folks in a way open to prayer, and then the religious folks saying, I'm all about prayer, and yet rarely practicing it the way God would have us to practice it. Which is really interesting, because if you stop and think about what prayer is, it's almost staggering to me why we don't pray more. Think about exactly what prayer is. Prayer is modeled by Jesus himself. Prayer is free, costs us nothing. Prayer is the one element that may most throw back the spiritual forces of darkness in our world more than any other. Prayer has been the undergirding focus of every significant movement of God throughout all of history. Prayer ushers us directly into the presence of God Almighty, and prayer, maybe more than any other practice, makes us more like Jesus himself. So when we consider all of those things, you would wonder, why in the world are we not praying more? Why aren't we praying all the time? It's at our endless disposal. It's there all the time, this endless resource. Why? You would think we couldn't get enough of it. And honestly, sometimes I do think that. I'm like, why aren't we praying more when this amazing resource God has given us is there all the time? And surely when I think about that, the devil must just smile. That one of the greatest practices that God gives us that could be used for God's good in the world, we just leave it laying there or at the very least, lately used. And somehow we have this tendency in the church to reduce the power of prayer to this good, moral, religious action that seems to have all the pop of a lukewarm glass of milk. You might remember from last week, we talked about that guy on the cruise who was enjoying the cruise but did not realize that his ticket gave him access to the entire feast that was on the cruise There is a feast before us, church, an endless resource before us, abundant richness before us. But do we realize it and do we indulge in it? Prayer is a way to feast in the richness of God in every single occasion that life brings. And that's what this series is about. 
engaging in the highs and the lows and everything in between in prayer, whether it's good times or bad times, or as we're talking about today, some of those struggling times. What will it take to get us to be a people of prayer? We've been using uh, some different Old Testament characters to help us understand the nature of prayer and what it looks like. And today we are turning to the Old Testament character of Hannah, who in her times of struggle gives us a lot to understand about what it means to be a people of prayer. She had prayed for a son, Samuel, but a lot of stuff happened before that encounter. And that's what we want to look at here this morning, because by understanding Hannah's story, we can better understand what she's sharing with us about the nature of prayer. The first thing I want to say about Hannah is that hers is a story filled with tremendous pain. And I don't use that term lightly. There are many places in the text here this morning that show us the incredible anguish and misery that Hannah is in. So if you have your Bibles with you or your smartphone, I do want to invite you to open up with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to look in chapter 1. If you don't know where 1 Samuel is, there's a whole section about a third of the way through the Old Testament. There's three series of first and second books. So there's 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. The Samuel ones are the first of those three sets of first and second books. So if you would open up with me or again, look on your smartphone. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, and this is what we hear. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Please understand, this is a reference to pain deep down in the soul. There is an intensity to this pain. The Hebrew word for weep here is to wail loudly. It's not a gentle weeping, it's a shrieking, it's a wailing that's going on within her. Why is she so distraught? Why is she so upset? And again, it's not just this light tears down your face. It's like shoulders shaking kind of prayer. She's weeping loudly. Why? 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 6 tells us, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb and her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. So we hear on the one hand that Hannah cannot have children. But as if that is not bad enough, her husband's other wife, Peninnah, is rubbing Hannah's nose in the fact that Hannah can't have children and Peninnah can. So the picture here as Hannah is beginning to pray is that she's not just crying out to God a little sort of, God, why aren't you helping me? We're given this image that she is roaring with anger. The Hebrew word for irritated means she's roaring with anger in her prayer. So picture Hannah at this point praying, and we're not talking that she comes before God with her hands kind of like this and nightly, nicely there and puts them before her chest and it's like, oh dear Lord, if you would think about me and sort of help me, I'm having a rough day. No, it's nothing like that. It's almost like her, her fists are clenched and she is like, Lord, where are you? Why am I going through this? There's this deep guttural reaction for her. There's an intensity to her pain and she is crying out to God, where are you when I need you? She's crying out to God in her struggle and in her anger. God, help me, where are you? But there's nothing nice and polite about it. There's so much we could learn from Hannah there, but one of the first things we learn is that Prayer is probably not nearly as polite as we make it out to be. Prayer is way more guttural than we often realize. And then besides this irritation from Peninnah, and again, that's reason enough to be irritated. Remember, Hannah is childless, can't have any children. Now, I want to be really careful here. We are in the year 2017. And there's something about when I say that she can't have any children, there's probably a sense of us immediately of, of sympathy that goes out there. That's too bad, and that's, that's unfortunate. Because unfortunately, some of us know what it's like to not be able to have children, or we know people who can't have children. And I want to be really careful here. 
that's an incredibly hard thing. It is a very sensitive thing. It's so hard to be able to go through those times, incredibly hard. Please hear me when I say that. But with all due respect, it is not as excruciating today for women to not be able to bear children as it was for women in Hannah's time. And again, there's no disrespect intended there. Please hear me on this. I'm not dismissing the pain that families today go through when they can't have children. But understand the context for Hannah. In ancient times, children meant economic security. In ancient times, your economic status was directly related to how many children you had. It didn't matter if you were a baker or a shoemaker or a farmer, because the bigger your family was, the more labor force you had. The more labor force you had, the more work you could do, and the more work you could do, the more income you could bring in. It's a pretty simple formula. Lots of children meant you were going to be rich. Few children meant you were going to be poor. So in biblical times, only about four out of ten children children ever even made it to adulthood. There was no social security at that time. So if you were an older person and you had no children to take care of you, odds were at some point you were going to starve to death because there was just no one there to take care of you. So children provided economic security. Children also provided a national security. If you stop and think about it, it makes sense. If your tribe or nation had fewer children, fewer children meant less kids could go in and be in the army, which meant a smaller army. If your neighboring nation had more children and more people in the army, then obviously they could be stronger and overpower you. So having lots of children, it was literally a means of life and death. And to have many children, to have that ability meant you were a hero in this culture. So literally, your economic status and your national security depended on being able to have children. It's literally that matter of life and death. With the kids you survived, without kids you did not. So women in this time, if they could not have children, they were considered worthless. They were a disgrace. They were considered nothing. A woman's entire identity, worth, and self-image was wrapped up in her ability to have children. And that's what Hannah is dealing with here this morning. And it is devastating to her. She can't have children. This is why she's weeping. This is why she's in such intense pain. Now, let me pause here. It may not be the inability to have children for us right now, but I want to ask each and every one of us, what is it right now in our lives that we are placing our entire self-worth into or upon? What is the thing right now that holds the key to our heart? What is it that gives us our self-image and our drive and a sense of being okay or of worth? If you can identify that in your life right now, and now suddenly picture that it's gone for whatever reason, then now you're starting to get even a glimpse of how Hannah is feeling. There's an author named Robert Alter. He's a professor at Berkeley. He's a professor of Hebrew literature. And he points out some interesting things in Hannah's story here this morning. First of all, he says, notice the family dynamics that are broken. Here's the husband, Elkanah, and he actually says to Hannah, even though she can't bear children, he says, I love you more, Hannah. Imagine being Peninnah. She's giving him children, and he still says, you're not my favorite. How in the world do you think that's going to make Peninnah feel? You can understand why she'd be irritated. You can understand why she's going to retaliate at any point she can. You can understand why she's going to rub Hannah's nose in the fact that Hannah can't have kids, and I can, says Peninnah, at every single chance she gets. 
I don't know what your favorite, uh, you know, reality as it goes, reality show may be and drama kind of thing, you know, Beverly Hills this and that or whatever, but I'm telling you, those reality shows have nothing on the Bible <laughs> and the drama and the craziness and the brokenness that goes on there. That's one element of Hannah's story. Another thing that I want to point out, it's a little bit of tangent, but it directly relates. Alter points out the fact that there's no place in Scripture, not one place, where any polygamous family is ever happy. Not once. The Bible points out over and over again that polygamy is never a good idea because it always leads to brokenness and comparison and favoritism and drama, and it's just never good. So you look at Hannah here this morning, and look what's going on. In addition to the pain that she's going through, she's got these two significant figures in her life, and both figures represent something different. Essentially, both figures represent the normal forms of hope to be found in society at that time. On the one hand, you have Peninnah. She represents the hope of society. Why? Because she has the ability to have children. And so in that society, the ability to have children gave you your sense of identity. And again, if you had lots of kids, there was a sense of hope for the future, both for your immediate family, but also for your entire nation and society. So Peninnah represents finding a sense of hope in that way. Then you have her husband, Elkanah, and he represents a psychological hope of sorts. As Alter points out, Elkanah says he loves Hannah. Now that should be enough because he represents this idea of offering his love and his appreciation and his desire and his affirmation of Hannah. That should have been enough for her. So interesting what you have here are two options for women to build their identity upon. Either this idea of being able to have children, or at least if that's not going to be happen, to be loved by your husband or to be affirmed by somebody in a romantic way, to be found desirable by somebody else. And even interestingly today in our world, that remains the case for many. Just that desire to be found affirming and desirable by somebody else fills our cup and we think that's going to fulfill our longing for hope in our world. This is what Hannah is facing here this morning. One option, the sociological hope, being able to have children. The second, a psychological hope of being found attractive in a romantic kind of way from her husband. It seems like those are her only two options. But here's the kicker of the story. You ready? Hannah will have none of it. <laughs> She's not going to choose either one. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. It says this. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Look what it says. It says Hannah stood up. Now at first you and I are like, what about it? Big deal. What's so significant about that? The Hebrew word for arose here, it doesn't mean she just got up sauntered away kind of nonchalantly. It means Hannah is going to take action. She is not going to be passive in the face of these circumstances that are before her. She's not going to be passive in these two options of hope that are given to her. And how does Hannah choose to take action? How does she refuse to be passive in the face of everything that is coming against her? By praying. <laughs> I hope that we can hear that. This would be one of those moments in Scripture where I weren't the dun-dun-dun music kind of thing. Katie and I were looking at this sermon before today and going through a couple of things, and she's like, oh, this is like the plot twist moment in the story. Yes, that's right. It's the plot twist moment. 
Against these circumstances that she is facing, Hannah is going to pray. Because what Hannah is doing here is she is now rejecting the idols of hope that are offered to her by her society, the sociological hope of being able to have children and the psychological hope of being found desirable by her husband. And her real spirituality starts here in this moment when she arises against her circumstances and begins to practice prayer. It is in prayer to God that Hannah finds her real spirituality and the power to throw off the false forms of self-worth. And how does Hannah's prayer begin? By focusing on the one place that she can find her true hope and her true self-worth. Hannah's prayer begins with God. Her prayer begins with Lord Almighty, master of the entire universe. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. It says, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, Master, God of all, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. The prayer begins with Lord, God Almighty, Lord of the universe, I come to you first. Then she says, look upon the misery of your servant. And here, Hannah is doing something that's actually astounding when you stop and think about it. And please don't miss this. She's making an assumption that's incredibly powerful. She's assuming at this point that the broken heart of, at this point, she's by herself, a single, rural, obscure woman matters. (laughs) to the God of the galaxy, that she as a pile of dust matters to the infinite God of the universe and that he cares enough about her to hear her prayer. Fellow piles of dust, please know that God hears your prayers. God is interested in your prayers. Think about that and let that sink in. So here's Hannah taking her deepest needs, and she is pouring them out to God while recognizing the reality of who God is. And how is she doing it? Through prayer. Look what she's doing with her emotions. She's pouring them out, but she's pouring them out to God. So I'm totally generalizing here, but our society generally says there's one of two ways to handle your emotions. The more secular, liberal side tends to say, you can express your feelings to everyone. Just put them out there. It doesn't matter to who or when. Just let them all gush all the time to whoever happens to hear them. And then you have the more conservative traditionals who say, no, 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 that's not what you do with your emotions. you got to hide your emotions and hold on to your emotions. Don't talk about your emotions. And if you need to, deny them, but don't let anyone in. (laughs) But look what the Bible says. The Bible says, pour out your emotions to God in God's presence, and God will take them and change them. And how do we do that? Through prayer. Processing your deepest emotions in the light of who God is changes those emotions. That's what Hannah's doing here this morning. And look what happens. She promises her son to God. 1 Samuel 1 
I will give him, that is a son if he were to be born, to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Do you know what's happening there? If you give me a son, I will give him into full-time ministry for you, God. Now, we hear that, and we think it sounds like some form of horse trading, you know, like some form of manipulation. Lord, you give me something, I'll give you something. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of thing. No, 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 no. You got to understand the context here. In these days, in order to go into ministry to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Levi was the designated tribe of God that God said, these are the ones who will be my priests. But if you were from another tribe and you wanted to go into full-time ministry, you became what was called a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was a member of another tribe who wanted to go into that full-time ministry. They can never be sort of a full priest, but they could be a full-time, part, a full-time assistant of sorts, a, a lay priest, as it were. And to do that, there were two marks of being a Nazarite. One was you could not drink. And number two, that person never got their hair cut. So look what Hannah's doing here this morning. A Nazarite would have been of no economic value to the family. They weren't going to be there to care for you in your old age because they were off doing ministry. They weren't going to be there with you to take care of you. And they weren't going to be there to give you emotional support along the way because they were going to be with others doing ministry. You you didn't even get to raise a Nazarite. So here's Hannah. And remember, this is a time, it's not like when they were separated and she's giving him to God that she could have stayed in touch through email or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or any of those things. That wasn't going to happen. So she's giving him to God and there's not going to be any connection really beyond that point. Why is she doing that? In this time, there were cultural reasons to have children. We've talked about those. There were emotional reasons to have children. We've talked about those. So why is Hannah willing to give up her son? Here's why. In addition to cultural reasons, in addition to emotional reasons, there were theological reasons as well to have children. Most women did not focus on the theological reasons. They focused on the emotional and the societal side. But Hannah began to remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I will heal the world. And how am I going to heal it? How am I going to offer salvation to the entire world? He said, through your descendants, Abraham. That meant every Israelite woman who would come after that time by having children would be participating with God in the salvation of the world. And again, most women only focused on the cultural and emotional reasons to have children. But here, Hannah's coming back to the theological reason to have children and making that her center. She is beginning to remember and realize that by having children, she would be sharing in God's plan of salvation for the world. And there's a shift happening here for her that now after all the pain that she has gone through, She's now saying, God, I no longer want a child just for me. I want a child for you. So that in the presence of God, in prayer, Hannah realizes she desires God's desires even more than her own to help bring lasting life into the world, to recognize she is part of a plan bigger than herself. She is part of a purpose bigger than herself that she wants to give her child for the purposes of God. And there's a shift that happens within Hannah as she prays. In the past, God had been the means for her to have a son, which was her end goal. But now a shift is occurring where God and God's mission is the end goal and her son will be part of getting to that end goal where the focus is to God's glory rather than her own. And that is quite a shift that's happening. Do you want proof that this is the case and this is really happening? Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 20. We didn't get to hear this today, but this is what it says. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face 
was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they rose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Then Elkanah laid with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Look at this. After praying to God, she went on her way. She found something to eat, and her face was no longer downcast. It was only after that that her womb was opened. Please hear that. It did not say she prayed, she got pregnant, she got happy. It says she prayed, she got happy, and had no idea if she would eventually become pregnant, although she did. Why is that important? Because it's not the circumstances dictating her happiness. It is the prayer and the shift that happened in her prayer, regardless of the circumstances that led to her happiness and her peace. It is through prayer that she finds hope, because there is a shift in her soul to be aligned with the mission of God, that now her son will be a part of that mission of God, and it would not be an end in and of itself. It was to the glory of God rather than herself that she was now making the prayer. God now, through prayer, has become Hannah's center. Her self-image is no longer based on her having a child or not, and it was prayer that helped her to understand that. Church, what is it that holds our self-image and our esteem? What is it that holds the key to our heart? And how might we be able to give that hope to God in prayer? How might we be able to give our finances or our children or our art or our sports or our success or you name it to God for God's purposes in prayer rather than our own? And what would happen if in prayer we gave those things for the purposes of God's mission rather than our own? For God's greater life in this world than our own. That we might experience the shift that happens for Hannah. First church, what will it take for us to be a people of prayer where prayer is literally woven into the very DNA of who we are? I ask you this day to take whatever step you need to to become more of a praying people. Pray every day at 5.17 a.m. or p.m. or both. Join us at 6 a.m. at the North Campus every Friday morning. Take a post-it sticky note today with you to remind you to pray for someone else and whatever's going to be written on that sticky note. Do whatever you need to do to find time alone with God every day where you don't just come and politely put your hands together and say, oh, dear Lord, but rather pour out ourselves completely into the presence of God Almighty that God will change us and make a shift within us that our life becomes all about God's purposes and not our desires. Today, may we be a people of prayer who pour ourselves out in every way for the honor and the glory of God Almighty, for the sake of the world. Amen.